This is Aran Shamini. It is Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. And in this episode of the Amini Core Podcast, I'm going to explore the idea of a physics of business, a philosophy of business. What does it actually mean? One researcher that really shaped my view on this topic was Jeffrey West, is Jeffrey West, and his work that went into his book called Scale, something along the lines of the surprising math underlying cities, companies, and organisms. And in physics, one of the most powerful tools, well, let me put it this way, physics is the application of mathematics to the physical world to understand some mechanism at a more fundamental level so that predictions can be made, experimentally validated, and in some cases leveraged into technologies of various sorts. The tools that physicists use to understand the physical world are all mathematical in nature. And so you have these various mathematical principles that physicists apply to the natural world, almost like an optometrist flicks through various lenses to see if your understanding or your view of the letters and numbers in front of you on the board becomes clearer or more fuzzy. A mathematical tool can help clarify or further obfuscate some objective reality that exists beyond the person observing, the physicist in question, the scientist. And These tools, these lenses, are many in nature and vary in nature, and some have no bearing to one another, some seem random, and they come from all over the mathematical world. I once thought of physics, the difference between physics and math is very interesting, because in math, anything logical can exist. Yet in physics, only that which can be experimentally proven is thought to exist. And yes, you can have theoretical understandings, but eventually they must be borne out in experiment. And math is almost the physics of consciousness, because All of these mathematical principles take place in one's mind in an internally logical framework, while in physics, physics is the application of math to the physical world. And you're limited by what is, not what can be thought of. I mean, there are so many strange and counterintuitive concepts in math that have no bearing to physical reality, yet 
objectively do exist, however, only in the minds of mathematicians. So that's just a distinction I wanted to make because math and physics are very intricately and integrally related, but could not be different than one another simultaneously. And so applying physics principles to business is about applying the distilled application or distilled understanding of math to the socio-economic world. It's almost like some interesting third prong to this worldview, this interplay between math and physics, and then you have business, which is in the mind of the person and society, yet requires us to buy and sell physical goods. So, in a second, I'm going to get into the concept of first principle thinking. Okay, so first principles thinking. It's this concept that I learned in physics class where my handwriting became fantastic from taking handwritten notes for three classes, two to four to six classes a year, which meant four to six notebooks a year. And when any physicist comes to a problem, this is how they found, this is how the most famous solutions have come about. This is how to this day, physicists solve new problems. They see a phenomena or even think up a fake non-existent phenomena and begin applying some first principles thinking to it. Meaning, what are the smallest, what are the smallest set of variables that determine the outcome of this mechanism, of this phenomenon? How do those variables interact? And what mathematical tools exist to explore these interactions. From there, a rough framework is created that takes often years and years and years to explore and develop. Oftentimes, what we see in school, E equals MC squared, for instance, is actually the tiniest of acorns from a large tree that had to be grown first. All of the work that went into exploring the idea finally bared fruit in the form of these equations that are so famous. But they do simply and oddly just fall out of the work itself. And by work, I mean, you know, how does What's a good example? How does light travel through space? Right? And so you might start thinking, well, is there a resistance to space? 
Um, how do we determine the power of the light beam? Is there a fixed speed of light? Is the speed variable? What do we know already? If this was done, if this was asked recently or even in the past hundred years, we know that the speed of light is constant. So we would put C up on the board. Okay, light travels at this speed. But how does it maybe uh, travel across the universe? Does it just move like normal? Well, what about the space in which it's moving through? Theories have shown that it is itself expanding or could have been expanding. Does the expansion of the universe while light is traveling through it at any given point affect the light? Well, if C is always constant, then the light does not notice a change, but would an observer notice a change? Would the light seem a different color or have a different characteristic if seen from, a, a, let's say, behind or in front of it, right? As light is moving away from you, does it have a different characteristic than if it's moving towards you? And for any of you that are familiar with it, I'm just exploring the idea of Doppler shift in light. And it turns out, I think if it's going away from you, it's red, redder. If it's coming towards you, it's bluer. Maybe I have that backwards. I think if it's coming towards you, it's redder. And so people start putting ideas down on paper and start seeing how they work. And that is the beginning of any physics solution. It's this hodgepodge of ideas, notions, right? And, and eventually you say, well, if eventually or early on you'll put down a mathematical symbol called the equation symbol. And you will say, well, this side of the phenomenon equals that side of the phenomenon. These variables on this side of the phenomenon will eventually equal the, the variables on that side of the phenomenon after some, or at some point, given some constraints. When um, the universal, like the, the expansion rate of the universe, for instance, goes to zero. And then you kind of get an equation and you start trying to solve the equation using the various tools available from the body of math knowledge, you know, in your time. And sometimes the tools work, sometimes the tools don't. On, in extraordinary cir circumstances, you have to come up with new tools to solve, to explore the idea mathematically. And this was uh, like Newton's invention of calculus to explore increasing acceleration of a body towards the surface of the earth, AKA his laws of motion and gravity. Quantum physics was invented effectively to explore the notion of subatomic particles and their energy releases that only came in very, in 
specific units that all were multiplied of each other. One, two, three, four times power, etc. And so what would a first principles understanding of business look like? Right? As someone who doesn't understand it perhaps or is not at least successful in it? Well, you might want to start with the definition of money. What is money? How do we define it? Is there a universal definition of money? A general definition that always is true? How does money then interact with time? How does money interact with the number of businesses that are in a specific market? How does money move? And can these equations be used ultimately to make a prediction about how money might move? Maybe you could make a design a more profitable business because you have some underlying understanding of money that turns out to be in some way true, not even entirely true true to a degree enough that's useful or measurable. So this is what really fascinates me. What is a business physically? I've explored this before and the idea can send me just down a rabbit hole. But in the broadest sense, what is so trippy to me is the invisibleness of physics, how physics and math are invisible and how they understand and predict invisible processes or analyze invisible processes to predict visible ones. It's insane. I was telling my wife the other day. It's crazy that when, in a, in, excuse me if I'm wrong and correct me if I'm wrong, how a how an anti-electron and an electron, when they touch, always produce two photons. Always. And if you ask a physics major, where do the electrons go and where do the photons come from, they will say, um, they will say, one ceases to exist and the other begins to exist at time zero, right? A negative time at the time of, uh, if, if time zero is the time of annihilation, then right somewhere asymptotically before zero, the electrons cease to exist. And at some time after zero, the photons come into existence. That's probably an over-reliance on the mathematical understanding of the physical world, but regardless, it's an interesting concept. And so back to the physics of business, if you will. Business is ultimately invisible. Perhaps I should say back to the physics of the invisible. A business is ultimately invisible, and it... can't be touched, right? 
you might say, well, the business is the LLC documents, the, the legal document, paperwork. And then I would say, okay, give that paperwork to someone else and see if the business remains as profitable as it was the moment you handed it over. And the answer would be, of course, no. It's going to just get destroyed or the person who gets it will have to start from scratch. Start what exactly? If I took the same people from the business as it stands now and I put them in a new legal vehicle and gave them no further instructions, they would be able to replicate some aspects, if not most of the aspects of the business. Yet, the business before it, business A, from which I took all the employees, could then have new employees in every position and the business would continue. It'd be an interruption, a learning curve, but it would continue. But then I would have two businesses of nearly identical variety, you know, designation or, or operation. So how is that possible? Did I just split two cells? And if so, what was the DNA that transferred into, two, in the, into the second cell? And I would argue it's the processes themselves. And processes ultimately are words that let you repeat certain actions and formulas for actions, workflows, you would call them in business, to do of whatever is needed for the business. And I would say the sum total, so if you add up all these processes, that is the business. And as you add them up, there's some variable that denotes the relative value of each process, right? If I am one of four financial analysts for a firm and I, and I perform better, make better bets, then I will get paid more. And ultimately it's going to be because I add more value to the business. So what I'm doing is more valuable, creates more profit for the business by saving money or increasing revenue or both, ideally. And I get paid more, typically, right? Statistically, that's what will happen. So, excuse me. So, this is then, I think, a sum total, right? My value is a as an employee of the business, partner of the business, owner of the business, right? Ultimately, the profitability of the business is reliant on the founder and owner, owners, founders and owners, as well as everyone involved in it. Ultimately, it's a, it's a function of everyone involved in it, legally, which is another interesting designation. However, if my value is measurable in a business, 100000 a year, and let's just say the business... Let's not even take the business and the negotiation of the salary. Let's say in, in general, high or low, my relative value to someone who provides less value is going to be higher. Even if we're not getting paid, if the whole business overpays or underpays, it'll shift everyone's salary, I feel. So relatively, relative value remains constant between two employees. So then what's, what are the subcomponents of the value I provide? 
And can I optimize them? Of course you can. You can get better at your job. How do you get better? You study the, the process. You talk to other people. You shadow. You mentor. You read. You do everything you can. You practice. You practice. You practice. And you ultimately、um, develop yourself as a leader.、You、try to become a better leader. Lead yourself. Lead your team. Right. And.、Uh, So then, there are these sub-processes that have relative amounts of value to the business, and so I would say these sub-processes, these sub-actions, these things, which I'll leave undefined for now because that seems like a can of worms in and of itself, add up to a person's relative value. Every person's relative value adds up to the business's relative value, ability to create value, right? Aka, it's profit margin. And I would also argue that that the value is cum,、um, cumulative or commutative, where you could, in theory, I would imagine, add up the relative value of all the processes of every person, irrespective of who's doing them, all the work that's being done, and arrive to a general value.、Uh, General sense of the value of the business itself. So that's interesting, and that would lead me to believe that a business is ultimately a value creation process. And the more value the process creates, the more money is made, the faster it grows. Typically, the more people get paid in the business,、uh, the longer it lasts. Right? The more returns for shareholders. Like everyone's happy. Now, maybe historically. That was done at the cost of the environment, and environmental costs were not factored in. But now that's not the case anymore. So, so the value of a business is no longer tied to quick bucks. I mean, you can't start a valuable company anymore polluting the land. That's not going to fly. You're going to be instantaneously caught. You might get grandfathered into that, but those grandfathers are going to die. Statistically, every company dies. So. Eventually, we'll have all these companies that only add value in a clean way, with environmental costs internalized into the cost of the product and service, etc. So, this idea then that every task any every employee does on behalf of the company adds value, and it can add negative value, I would say. And then adding up all of those tasks done by every person, irrespective of how we organize them, but just as a list of tasks, adds up to the value of the company. That's a first principle approach to business. And it's interesting because there's an equation sign in there, which lets me predict some things. One thing is right if the sum total of individual processes, the value of individual processes equals the sum total. Of the value of the business itself, that's an interesting equation. And what might that predict? And well, that's not exactly obvious. That's not exactly an obvious way to think about it. But that's what comes out like fruit falls from the tree of this body of knowledge, which is a little discovery. Which I might say is the most addicting feeling in the world is discovering something. The best drug in the world. Is discovery. It's 
And there's so much to discover. We know nothing. It's un- unbelievable. I would venture to say we know under 1% of knowledge. I mean, when you start going down d- different uh, domains, biology, physics, and mechanical, and any specific domain, you realize like we're very limited in what we can do, what we can create, or based on what we know about the world. And where our knowledge is often a little further than our material science, which would then be knowledge in a different field. But material science being literally the objects we can fabricate it as a, as a civilization. So what does it mean <clears throat> to explore out loud that the sum total of every process in the business equals the total value, the sum total of value of of business processes from zero to n, right? From from no process to the nth process, being the theoretical every last, the very last process, right? If you were somehow catalog them as process one, two, three, four, equals total value of the business. Well, how we define value of the business is going to be a critical metric. My gut says it's profitability or profit margin or maybe EBITDA as like a round, frothy view of it. So what happens if we set EBITDA of a company on one side and the sum total of processes on the other side? Well, you would assume then if you went and increased the value of any process large enough or every process a little bit, you would then get bigger EBITDA. And that tends to be true. What do management consultants do? The whole management consultant industry, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, is about improving business process efficiencies across any domain, any industry, any company, doesn't department, doesn't matter, right? And so that bears true. It, the prediction of this equation built on first principle thinking, first principle approach, makes a prediction that's verified by, you know, cursory look at the data. This is really significant because it means we can apply mathematical concepts to business in a new way to make predictions that have, that we've never explored. And ultimately begs the question, can we design a perfect company on paper? I think we can. world is a shit show. I get it. But even in the midst of a global pandemic, society must move forward. We don't give up easily, us humans. And one of the most important things to do right now is to plan your 2021. And what that means is knowing how to succeed in your business endeavors, given unprecedented global uncertainty. Well, the good news is it would take more than one nuke to shut down the internet. The globalized world is online and for better or for worse, about a dozen major social platforms are mature and robust and redundantly 
set up. So they will be around for a very long time. Now, every business has a set of buyers. Traditionally, a marketing department would have to spend a lot of time and effort talking to everybody they possibly could to ensure that the few of their buyers that are evenly dispersed in the crowd all hear their message. This is expensive and time consuming. In 2021, you'll be able to talk directly to your buyers in your business and communicate the messages that they are looking for that simultaneously put your brand in the best possible light. To learn how to do this, head over to Vigilant.com and click on the Institute button. V-I-D-U-L-A-N-T.com. Check out the Vigilant Marketing Leadership Institute and learn how to automate your entire marketing department, set it up as a growth marketing agency in the very business it's serving and get 10 times better results faster and for less. It really is possible. I wrote the book on it. I have the receipts. You can learn it too. It's not complicated, but it will take you some sustained effort and more importantly, applied practice. Once you start using my principles and framework in your business, it will click very quickly. And if you don't have a business for a brand, you can just spin up for practice. It's a great way to get a new job or a new client to show real results. So whatever you're doing, digital marketing is going to play an outsized role. And if you know what you're doing, you'll be able to stretch every marketing dollar much further and tell everyone exactly how much money you get out for every dollar you put into your marketing system. Vigilant.com. In today's news. All right, what a wild news day today. So, Purdue agrees to guilty plea in opioid case. Boy, oh boy, $8.34 billion. It's a lot of money for how many people they killed. Unbelievable. Imagine the growth in GDP as a nation if we didn't have tens of millions of people addicted to the most abuse, to the most one of the most addictive compounds known to man. Unreal. Quibi, which is the dumbest name I've heard, shuts down months after launch. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's just too good. A crash landing for a once high-flying startup that attracted some of the biggest names in Hollywood and had looked to revolutionize how people consume entertainment. How much did they raise for their 5-10 to ten minute chapters? of mobile content, our failure was not for lack of trying, founder Jeffrey Katzenberg and chief executive Meg Whitman wrote in an open letter to employees. We've considered and exhausted every option available to us, except making the product people want. I mean, un- 
unbelievable. They raised over a billion dollars, all entertainment companies. Like, the, the, <laughs> here's someone you should, as soon as you see them as a co-investor, flee for the hills. Their top investor uh, was the same person that allegedly invested in, was allegedly the same uh, group that invested in Theranos and Solyndra. Um, let's see. And none of the investors were Silicon Valley, quote unquote, institutional investors, AKA Silicon Valley venture capital firms. It was literally a who's who of, where is it, of TV companies. I mean, everybody from Sony to MGM, couple big banks in there, Quibi uh, investor list, oh my god, raised a billion dollars in funding, oh, it raised 1.75 total, I mean, the gall, <laughs> the absolute gall of these people. I can't even believe it. Oh, it's hard to find. That's not an easy list to find again. It was floating around VC Twitter for a while. Uh, Quibi top investor. Walt Disney Madrone Capital. I mean, Walt Disney Company, 21st Century Fox, NBC Universal, Sony Pictures, Time Warner, Viacom, E1, Lionsgate, MGM. Number one was Madrone Capital. If you ever see Madrone Capital on your cap table, run. Burn the documents and run. You are tainted by the ghost of poor understanding of blind vision. I mean, unreal, 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 unreal. And, oh God, it proves a couple things. One of the things it definitively proves is that entertainment, including TV and video executives, fundamentally now, and irrefutably, and completely do not understand the internet. They absolutely do not understand the internet in any, to any extent. Because if they knew anything about the internet, if they knew, if they had a 10 to 30% understanding of internet culture, they could have made Quibi a success. I mean, that's how little, they have an under 10% understanding of how the internet works, internet culture, and therefore the future of entertainment because it's all taking place on the internet. They thought they could read the data and copy Netflix and force people to be the captive audience that they are used to, which is why they disallowed sharing of their content across um, to, to screens, to larger screens via the screen sharing and on social media. And instead, I mean, they literally could have let you pick five second clips 
of any show that they had. And if they just enabled screen sharing, so you could put your phone on and watch it on TV, and they would have been bajillionaires. But they can't. They can't. And I think it's fundamental to the legality of legacy media licensing. When you make something for the internet, the only way it's going to work is if, to sh- if you freely share it on the internet. And so you can put stuff behind a paywall, but the value has to be tremendous. It, especially if you're going for a mass market, everyone's paying a little bit. You have to have so much content. It's unbelievable. And every day, Amazon and Netflix crank out new shows. Their price per month stays the same, so the relative value of every individual piece of content diminishes every day. There's a sort of inflation that occurs. So to catch up with that, I mean, you have to go look at what HBO had to do with Game of Thrones. I think they were putting in $100 million an episode. It was like insane. The production value was insane. It was a movie every week. They made 15 movies or something. So the membership model is a tough model to go wide with. You can go niche and be very high value to the the smallest possible niche you can target. And they'll actually pay more per month because you're delivering more value because you're speaking just to them and their problems, etc. Making content just for them and to their tastes. But anyway, I've talked about this at great length and it's hilarious. $1.75 billion of public money. These are like blue chip stocks. They're not all public companies, but you're talking uh, pension funds effectively funded this VC gamble on a non invalidated, unvalidated idea based on people that now definitively had no idea what they were talking about. And should honestly, if I was an investor, if I was an investor in a fund that had these stocks that invested in Quibi, I would go raise hell. What were you thinking? The guy that invested in Theranos? You're going to follow his lead? Right off a cliff. Oh my god. Google ex-CEO hits DOJ as antitrust battle looms. Former Google chief executive Eric Schmidt criticized the government's antitrust lawsuit against the search giant as misguided and unduly influenced by politics. Says, Give me a break. You have a monopoly. Everyone knows it. It's alright. You'll be fine. That's the thing. You'll be fine. It's the people's demand that drives supply. And just like everyone moved from... MySpace to Facebook, it was the demand for socializing virtually that was met by another supplier. The demand was there. The market follows demand. I mean, and you can lead the market in the case of supplying something that no one has verbalized their demand for, but you're talking like incremental, that's like a two-year jump, right? The first iPhone, the first iPad. It wasn't like I mean, a, a lot of entrepreneurs have been way too early. I myself, 10 years is, is too long. Um, Pope backs civil unions for gay couples. Good job. 
Big money egos shaped Oxford's vaccine deal. Inventors fought a tie-up with Merck before AstraZeneca dangled their offer. Oxford, England, just weeks before the University of Oxford announced a mega deal aimed at rolling out COVID-19 vaccine worldwide, university leaders had a revolt on their hands. Publicly, Oxford scientists were touting progress in the laboratory, but behind the scenes, two renowned vaccinologists leading the effort were fighting a proposed deal with U.S. pharmaceutical giant Merck & Co. The scientist's small biotech company, a spin-out partially funded by Oxford, was refusing to hand over intellectual property rights. To outflank their bosses, the scientists asked the London investment banker to help explore other potential deals. For the 900-year-old university, the stakes were as high as any time in its modern history. How interesting. And I wonder... Hmm. A lot of money. Scientists want some money, too. This is crazy. NASA captures a scene from a world 200 miles away. After a delicate snatch and grab asteroid encounter 200 million miles from the Earth, NASA mission engineers worked Wednesday to ensure the OSIRIS REX space probe brings home a full measure of insights into the origins of the solar system from the surface of an asteroid named Bennu. The first few images of the encounter show the robotic arm brushing the asteroid surface for about six seconds or so on Tuesday. Stimulus deal seen unlikely before election. <laughs> Queeby shuts down after months. Oh my god. Mr. Katzenberg said the company decided to return $350 million in capital. Well, that's nice of them. It costs $4.99 a month. Had to compete with... I mean... Oh my god. So, I am working on... I am working on, I <laughs> can't believe I'm about to say this, I'm working on one of my projects, forget the news, uh, I'm working on a alternative to Quibi, a competitor to Kibi, <laughs> who knows how this thing is supposed to be said, but I have, I think, a, well, it's much cheaper to test, oh my god, is it cheaper, A hundred grand will get me the definitive yes or no on this new revenue model to monetize all sorts of content and to capture the lost video revenue, advertisement revenue, according to many experts, that I think amounts to about 16 billion. There's a problem right now in video advertisement where, you know, no one's figured it out yet and the analytics are lacking and the ad technology is lacking. And so I have found off-the-shelf parts to mimic or to replicate or to piece together, I should say, to create a technology stack that, um, you know, using certain features of certain technologies to create a technology stack that does what, that monetizes video content, I think, will monetize uh, video content far more effectively. And it's an insight brought to me by my marketing framework and understanding that predicts customer acquisition funnels, optimize customer acquisition funnels, no matter the situation. So I followed that. I tested demand for it. Initial tests were very strong. And I was like, yes. And the the wheels are in motion now. So now I'm working on licensing a bunch of uh, genre-specific content that's been proven and that's been proven popular, but is not picked up it's independent content 
So we're going shopping for partners to supply the content we would add to their revenue via our technology and our distribution method. And it'll effectively, if it works, it'll effectively leapfrog over QB's massive dead corpse as a nimble little thing. And, you know, it's right now, I'm personally doing it as a passion project, as a, as a, um, I'm really into lifestyle businesses right now. I love the idea and I have for a long time of big companies, but I, after struggling for so long as a business person and having finally reached a modicum of stability, if you will, I want more stability. I want extra stability and I want really strong cash flow. So if I could 10x my cash flow, that's my goal right now, personally. And then I can get into larger plays when I'm um, able to deploy my capital as I see fit to start projects. Starting new ideas, off, getting new ideas off the ground is the hardest part of all this. Anyway, so um, it's on the um, it's on my AminiCorp website as a project called Damn TV, and effectively it's an e-channel for comedy that uses a new technology stack, monetization methodology to drive what on paper have been calculated theoretically insane revenues. And I've double checked my calculations, I've cut them down, I've trimmed them considerably, and still the dollar output, and I know this is crazy, and I agree it's crazy, and so I am excited by it, but I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I don't know what the rate of guarantee is, right, or the odds of success here, but I believe it's certainly worth checking into because the risk is low, and the return is, would be potentially incredible, and it'd be super fun right? Starting like an independent comedy channel. Uh, So it seems like, you know, I shouldn't share figures if you're interested, I guess. Come give me a talk, but the numbers are crazy. The numbers are crazy. I'm going to recalculate them a third time um, just to be sure before I spill any numbers. So if you want to talk to me, I set up a phone number just for this show. So give it a text. It is, what is it? Um, I don't know what it is. Dun, 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 dun. I'll plug it at the end of the show. Anyway. Um, pretty crazy stuff, pretty crazy stuff. And to watch Queeby just go down in flames, um, is, is crazy. There's one other article I thought was worth mentioning. Oh, how SNL gets done under COVID. I mean, can we talk about, Bill Burr was the best thing to happen to SNL in almost 10 years. I mean, good Lord, these people are funny people. The writers are funny writers, but the leadership and the, what would you call it? The censor structure of broadcast TV disallows 
for edgy comedy. I mean, they just don't, their jokes just don't laugh. They don't land. And part of it is because they're not allowed to say the truth because their corporate sponsors would get uncomfortable maybe or nobody wants to go there, right? But there's so much to make fun of in this world. And Donald Trump is not the only thing to be made fun of. I mean, God, can you imagine all the funny things you could do if you were just allowed to write any sketch you want that was genuinely funny, not just for the other comics in the room, which their humor is probably very particular and like deep and nuanced, if you will, but an average audience. I would love to see these people come up with their own sketches on YouTube. Man, I bet you it'd be funny. It'd be so much funnier. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Um, what else? Face masks and airlines. That's a problem. The air is so clean, though, on those airlines. I don't. I don't worry about it. Um, Thirty-two million for a dinosaur bone. Boy, that really highlights income inequality. You know what I'm saying? Someone can afford a. There's enough wealth in the world that someone can afford a full dinosaur skeleton <laughs> in their home, in their estate. Pretty wild, everybody. Pretty wild. Keep your chin up. One step after another. Mini Corp out. As always, you can reach me directly on my cell phone at 980-292-3658. Shoot me a text. Give me a ring. Say hi. Don't like something? Let me know. You do like something? Let me know. Looking forward to connecting with each and every one of you. As always, you can reach me directly on my cell phone at 980-292-3658. Shoot me a text, give me a ring, say hi. Don't like something? Let me know. You do like something? Let me know. Looking forward to connecting with each and every one of you. Thank you.